0: In Genesis fifteen, God promised Abraham a land, the land of Canaan. But He promised him that He would not receive that land until, quote, the iniquity of the Canaanites be full, until they filled up the cup of sin. Then, and only then, four hundred years later. Would they would his wrath be kindled and would fall upon them, and then Israel would be told to go into Canaan and to kill every man and woman and animal that would not relinquish that land. Then he warned his people Israel to rebel against God and not to go after the gods of those people that they just drove out. You just saw the wrath of God on that stuff. Don't be like them, God said. But the nation of Israel rejected God's messengers and ignored His warnings and went after other gods and hardened their hearts, killed His prophets and worshipped the idols of the foreigners. And in Dan- chapter 8, Daniel prophesied that when it finally reached their limit, Daniel 8.23, then God would bring judgment upon them by raising up a king who would bring destiny to their house. Now, history was repeating itself, as it were. Coming to its climax in these last days, in the fullness of time, in the end of the ages. And the people of Israel, the tenant farmers, were about to kill not just the messengers of the king, but his very own son. Their cup of abominations had nearly reached its limit and God was about to pour it out upon them. After so many warnings, he was about to dispense great desolation upon their land. And our Lord Jesus, in those last hours before his crucifixion, would say, On you will come all of the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Chapter 23, verses 35 and 36. And then in chapter 23, verse 38, he said, see your house Is left to you desolate. And he turned around and said, See this building, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be thrown down. This is a great warning. And it serves as a great warning, not for the nation Israel, for it's too late at this point for them. But it stands as a warning for all of us for whom that great judgment pointed the way to the great and final judgment of God upon the world. It stands as a warning for all of us that we would examine our hearts and our relationship to the Son of Man, the Messiah. Jesus' disciples asked him two questions After these sober words, those two questions you see in chapter 24 and verse number three, if you're looking at your text, there they ask him, number one, when will these things be? And number two, what will be the sign of your coming, your parousia, your your appearing? What will be the sign of your appearing and of the end of the age? These are the two questions, and Jesus gives two answers. The answer to the first question about these things runs from verses 4 to 35. Maybe you might mark it in pencil in your Bible. Uh, The answer to the second question regarding the parousia and the end of the age runs from verses 36 and following. Now, our text this morning involves the answer to question number one. When will these things be? That is, when will God judge the nation of Israel and destroy the temple as Jesus had just said? And the bottom line answer to that question is found at the end of that section in verse 34 when Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. But he begins answering the question up in verse 4. We looked at this last Lord's Day or two Lord's Days ago. He begins by answering the question in verses 4 to 14 by talking about various troubling events that people see in the course of the history of the world that nevertheless are not signs of the imminent end. But then in our text today, beginning in verse 15, the scene shifts And now is the time to flee to the mountains, verse 16. Now the real trouble is here. And the signal for the real trouble is in verse 15. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation. And so that's what we're going to uh, look at. Our text will begin in verses 15 And run through verse 28. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, to even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, Look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, Look, he is in the inner rooms, Do not believe it, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So that is our text. And to begin with, I want to just say two things right up front about this text. The first is to acknowledge that this is a very difficult passage of Scripture very involved and interwoven with so many other passages of Scripture. For the last few weeks, I have taken this, marking Bible number four, and it it weighs about three pounds more because of all of the pencil marks that I have put in this Bible, scouring it from one end to the other. This is a challenging subject, and very careful Bible scholars differ on many of the details, and so I reiterate what I mentioned last week, that is to give you, as it were, quote, permission to disagree if, if in fact, the text does not bear this out. Well, my understanding of this text is not to be made a membership requirement to join the church or anything like that. Uh, convinced of it that though I am, uh, so I do want to acknowledge that this is a very challenging passage, and uh, a great many good people do disagree on it. Um, however, it is important for us to grapple with the Word that God gave to us, and it is all for our good, and it is to our detriment to skip over. Passages and say, well, that's nitty gritty, splitting hairs, and we shouldn't worry about that. If it was that nitty gritty that we should worry about about it, God wouldn't have what put it in here. Okay, so we have to balance this that it's not the most critical aspect of the gospel, and yet it's not unimportant either. The second thing I want to say, just by way of introduction, is that my sermon today is incomplete. Um, even as of yesterday, it became obvious—or as of yesterday, it became obvious to me that there is just literally no way I—I I could in my, my with my abilities to to do justice to this in in one sermon. So we're really only going to get an introduction to this paragraph today, and and that will of necessity um, separate what God has joined together, so to speak. Uh, so all I can say is. I hope you didn't come to church just for one Sunday of your life, okay? So continue to come, and, and we'll hear how the word fits together. Um, as I say, Jesus gives here in verse 15 the signal event, the signal that judgment is about to fall, that the temple is about to be destroyed, that people should flee to the mountains, get out of t- Dodge, so to speak. Um, And that signal is what Jesus refers to as the abomination of desolation. And he identifies that as something that was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And the passage that speaks of that, there are four in Daniel that allude to this, but the first and probably primary one is in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. I think we have that perhaps on the screen. Daniel writes, on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So I want to do just really two things this morning. That's narrowing it down from 20, so you're in good good luck today. Two things. The first is that I want to give you the background for Daniel's prophecy. And the second is I want to give you the broader context of that prophecy uh, in Daniel. Okay, that's it. So this really is the introduction for next Lord's Day and and the weeks after. First, the background for Daniel's use of these terms. And the two terms that we're talking about are abomination and desolation. Okay, The abomination of desolations. First, let's just take them each one by one. The term abomination is the Hebrew term "shikuts." It means, it's usually translated, at least in the ESV, it's usually translated detestable thing. And it refers almost always to an idol. To an idol. And, And it refers to the idols of the godless nations all around Israel. All of those Canaanite gods and goddesses and and the gods and goddesses of the other nations that they worshipped and they made statues to. These are detestable things, or they should be detestable things to the people of God. They are an abomination. There's another word for abomination that's used. It's a more broad word talking about all of the things that God despises. But in this case, it particularly has to do with the idols of the various nations. But the problem is that the idols of the other nations didn't stay in the other nations. The problem was that Israel adopted them or tried to synchronize the gods of the other nations and the traditions and the rituals of the other gods with the worship of Yahweh, the one true God. So Israel sinned in abominations by adopting the gods of the other peoples, in fact, apparently even bringing idols into the very temple that was supposed to be the temple of God. And so the background of this is in many, many passages. Let me give you a few. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord says to me, you should return. He says, remove your detestable things from my presence Get your abominations out of my sight. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 34. Jeremiah says, They set up their abominations, notice this, in the house that is called by my name to defile it. Such brazen wickedness. And then Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 30 and following. For the sons of Judah, God says, have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They have built the high places of Tophah, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. This is part of the ritual of the worship of false gods. Can you imagine that to offer your own children as a sacrifice to that God? This is the way demons work. And God pronounces a judgment upon his people for such an abomination. Look at verse 32. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When it no shall excuse me. When it will no more be called Topheth, or the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth because there is no room elsewhere, and the dead bodies of this people talking about the people of Israel. The dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. God is pronouncing that kind of judgment because of abominations. Ezekiel chapter 5 verse 11 Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my, you have defiled my sanctuary with all your, here's our word, detestable things, or your abominations, and with your abominations, that's the, the broader word, therefore I will, what? God, God's going to leave them. I will withdraw. My eye shall not spare and I will have no pity a third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. And a third part will fall by the sword all around you. And a third part I will scatter to the winds and un- I will unsheath the sword after them. God is not mocked. And then Ezekiel chapter 11 verse 17. Therefore say, Ezekiel writes, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you. Now listen to this. This is This is the promise of of hope in the future. I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give to you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it its detestable things. they'll, They'll put away the abominations. They'll remove the detestable things and its abominations. Verse 19, and I will give them, listen to this, one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. And I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is Ezekiel's prophecy of the establishment of the new covenant that would come through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and says this, verse 21, the next verse, but for those whose heart goes after those abominations, detestable things, and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. So these are the abominations that the Lord has again and again and again seen in polluting the lands of the earth and now beginning to pollute his own people, and his own house. It's like somebody bringing something dirty and filthy right into your own home. And you are righteously angry about it. Abomination. And then the second word is the word desolation. This is the Hebrew word shameim, and it refers to something that is deserted or made desolate or destroyed, usually in a shocking fashion. The roots of this idea of some uh, a desolation, the roots of this idea, go back to the giving of the law to the people of Israel in Leviticus chapter twenty-six, and really. The whole Leviticus 26 is the whole context. um, That whole context there, the whole chapter is the background for Daniel's prayer that leads up to the angelic announcement about the abomination of desolation. So if you want to go back and do a little more study, you can think about the connection of Daniel 9 to Leviticus 26. But let me give you a sample. Verse 21. The Lord says, if you walk contrary to me, and will not listen to me. I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you. And by the way, Daniel's visions that he's going to see are, are filled with what? Wild beasts of all kinds. These nations of, of the earth. Uh, God says, I will, I will loose the wild beasts against you which, have bere- which w- shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. I will scatter you among the nations. This is verse 33 now. I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation. There's our word and your cities shall be a waste. And the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. The land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have the rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. God is saying this, when I desolate the land and carry you away into captivity, then finally the land will get the rest that you have denied it. Now, this is not the Sabbath like we think. I don't think this is primarily talking about the Sabbath like we think of the, the weekly Sabbath, you know, the, the, the last day of the week. But rather, the, this is the, the land Sabbath. The people have a Sabbath. The land have, has a Sabbath too. The people have a Sabbath every seven what? Days, the land has a Sabbath every seven years, right? And so this is the land Sabbath that is being neglected it, as, as a representation of all of God's laws being neglected. And God said, I will bring my judgment upon you and, and you, you want to withhold the land Sabbath from me? I will, I will get it. <laughs> and, and I will get it when I remove you, when I make the land a desolation. The land was to rest every seven years. And every seven sevens, that is every 49 years, was to be followed by a year of jubilee. A year in which all of the land and the property reverted back to its original tribal heritage when debts were forgiven and slaves were set free. That's the background. All right, now we continue to, Look at the Old Testament and you see the Lord talking about desolations coming to bear upon his people. Micah chapter 6 verse 13. For example, the Lord says, I will strike you with a grievous blow making you desolate because of your sins. Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 29. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have made the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations that they have committed. And God did exactly that. He did it through the nation of Babylon around 6,000 BC. That empire came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, the temple of the one true God, and carried into captivity The people and left the land a desolation. And Jeremiah, who is writing after, uh, writing during that desolation, that exile, he says this in Jeremiah 44, verse 22 The Lord could no longer bear your evil deeds and the abominations that you committed. Therefore, your land has become a desolation and a waste and a curse without inhabitant as it is this day. And that was the situation that was still in place when Daniel prayed to the Lord in Daniel chapter 9, verse number 18. And he said, oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. It was Daniel calling out to the Lord from Babylon far away that God would look at the desolations that he had wrought upon the land of the people of God. That is the background for the use of these terms, the way they're being used all through the scripture. This doesn't come out of nowhere. This has a a long history, as you see, the Lord speaking this way to his people. Now I want to turn secondly to the broader context of the book of Daniel. And I want to kind of walk you through the book just a little bit this morning. So, I would like to have you turn to the book of Daniel and as you're doing that, you flip over to let's start with I would say chapter 2 would be a good place to look. I'm not going to read a whole lot here, but if you look at your scriptures, if you have a Bible that has headings, you can at least sort of follow the headings and, and get sort of the, what I'm trying to give you is the lay of the land. What is this book all about? Daniel is not a haphazard um, collection of random things. It's, it's, it's got a landscape to it. And as if we walk across the landscape, we'll begin to get a a lay of the land, we get a a basic outline of the terrain, and then we can start to focus down on some of the details and understand how they fit into the bigger picture, perhaps. So let me me try to give you the broader context, then, of the book of Daniel. Daniel is written to a people under the judgment of God, uh, written to a people in captivity to both warn them and be a reminder of the judgment of God on the one hand, but also to encourage them on the other, to encourage those with ears to hear. It's a warning on the one hand that God judges abominations with desolation and destruction. On the other hand, it is an encouragement that in spite of the domination of those godless nations over their land, that the Messiah's kingdom would conquer them all and would rule eternally. Now, chapter 2 gives us um, the record of a dream, one of several dreams in the book, right? we go to read Daniel, and we're like, oh, great, another dream. What do I do with this? Got some more toes and horns now, huh? So this is the first dream in the book, Daniel chapter 2, and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a great statue. You probably remember this from the Sunday School Flannel Graph lessons. Daniel dreams of this great statue, and it's made up of different types of materials, and the statue, Daniel tells him, is representative of four kingdoms. Four successive kingdoms are the grand scheme of the book of Daniel. These four kingdoms, this first foundational vision sort of sets the tone for where the rest of the book is going to go. Most interpreters believe these four kingdoms to be first. Well, the first is easy. That one Daniel identifies. It's your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. It's the kingdom of Babylon. The second is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, Medo-Persia. The third is the kingdom of Greece, the empire, the Greek empire. And the fourth is the Roman empire. So Daniel sees this vision of these four successive empires. But then he sees a a stone that's cut out from a mountain, this huge stone. Like the cornerstone of a building just just cut out like you would cut it out for something, for some good purpose. But it's cut out without any human hands. It's like God does it. And this huge stone cut out without hands comes down and crushes all of the kingdoms of the earth. It crushes this statue. And then the stone in turn begins to uh, fill up the whole earth. It grows until it it covers the, the globe. That's the vision and daniel is uh, or, or the vision is teaching that in the days of that fourth empire god will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed verse 44 a kingdom that shall never be destroyed will come hit the feet that is, that will come in the days of that fourth empire and take its place over all of the empires of this earth. These earthly kings, these earthly rulers, will be characterized by pride and blasphemy. They will speak outrageous things. You make a man a dictator and he'll say a lot of outrageous things. <laughs> And that's exactly what these men did. Nebuchadnezzar made such great boasts in chapter four. Uh, you flip the page. Uh, excuse me, he, he made them earlier, but then in chapter four, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He said, "All right, you think you're great because you have conquered the nations of the world? I will make you. I will. I will make you lose your mind." You, you, you are a beast of an empire and you'll think like a beast. And you did think like a beast. He lived as a beast in the field for a period of time, a seven-fold period of time. Well, then we come to chapter 5 and one of Nebuchadnezzar's successors named Belshazzar. Belshazzar, if you look at chapter 5 there, we got him. Yep, and uh, he has the same pride and arrogance. And in chapter 7, Belshazzar has a similar dream to the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. It's a dream, this time, of a succession of four strange beasts. And these are also the four nations that are to come. And from the last beast comes another king who will make blasphemous boasts and who will persecute the saints. This king coming out of that fourth empire will be an anti-Christ, no doubt about it. But while wicked empires are ruling the earth look in the middle of chapter 7 while the wicked empires are ruling the earth in heaven there's another enthronement scene taking place you have the kings of the earth being enthroned one after another but now in heaven you have one who is like a son of man that's a loaded term isn't it here's a son of man Who is being presented to the ancient of days. And he is crowned and he is given a kingdom over all that shall never be destroyed. And though this earthly emperor would live and rule for a short season. Daniel says a a time and times and half a time. The Son of Man in Heaven will be given quote an everlasting dominion. Now, make no mistake about it Th- This is the big point of the book you, you, don't be overly discouraged because you say, well, everybody can't seem to agree on what the ten who the ten horns are on this particular beast and i I don't know what to think about that brothers and sisters don't don't miss the you know, the forest for the trees. Here are all of the kingdoms of the earth coming and going and coming and going according to God's perfectly ordained plan for the ages to bring about his justice and yet who will be visited on with justice and over all of it, there is one who is set up as the great king of kings and lord of lords. If you don't get that in these prophetic books, then then I feel bad for you. If your heart is not warmed and encouraged and emboldened and enlivened and, and wanting to, to, to just bless and praise him who sits on the throne forever and ever, that's the point of these books. Well, that's what you have in Jan- Daniel chapter seven. This kingdom that will be established in the latter days, That will be a kingdom over all the kingdoms of men. And then you move to chapters 8 and 9. These go together. In chapters 8 and 9, God reveals that under two of these kingdoms in particular, there will be great desolation on Israel for their sins. Just as he had brought upon Israel through the empire of Babylon. And I believe that these two prophecies, the prophecies in Daniel's chapter 8 and 9, are recapitulated then later in the book, that is, in chapters 11 and 12. So that the prophecies in chapter 8 correspond with the prophecies in chapter 11, and the prophecies in chapter 9 correspond with the prophecies in chapter 12. Chapters 8 and 11 deal with the first great desolation that God will yet bring upon the people through the third empire in those visions. And chapters 9 and 12 will deal with the second great desolation that God will bring upon his people for their abominations. And he will bring that about through the fourth empire in those visions. So that's chapters eight and nine. Let's, let's look at those just for a moment, all right? Look at chapter eight. Here, there is a vision, and we won't talk in detail about the vision, but suffice it to say, it would be worth going back and picking up a study Bible and reading about chapters eight in amazing historical detail. It's a vision about Greece under Alexander the Great. Did you know he was in the Bible? And uh, it's about his defeat of the empire of Persia, and in fact, the division of the Greek empire into, uh, under Alexander's four generals, all of that, all of that predicted by the Lord through the prophet Daniel, an amazing set of prophecies. That that really rings true in great detail. Well, there was an eventual ruler, Daniel said, who would rise up in that Greek empire, who would be uh, someone that Daniel calls a king with a bold face, great in his own mind, and a contemptible person. How would you like those to be your descriptions? That's the description of this guy, this leader of the Greek empire, and God would use him, Daniel prophesied, that God would use this man to bring great judgment on Israel again. By his hand, if you're in chapter 8, you can look at verse 11, by the hand of this ruler, verse 11, the regular burnt offering was taken away and the sanctuary overthrown. That's a great desolation. And then in chapter 8, verse 13, This is the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And that would happen for a period of time before ultimately being restored. That is, the temple uh, would be restored. Uh, The city would be retaken, the temple restored, and the king, that evil king, broken, according to verse 25, Broken, but by no human hand, which reminds us of the of the great stone, right, cut out without hands. This is a divine uh, judgment. So God judges His people with a wicked ruler, and then He turns around and judges the wicked ruler who thinks that He's greater than any god on the planet in, in the world, right? That's the way God deals with people. Over and over again, you see that as the Old Testament unfolds. Now, interpreters are almost unanimous in identifying this ruler as a man by the name of Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV ruled in the Greek Empire, part of the Greek Empire, from 175 to 164 BC. And like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar before him, he boasted great things. Know what he put on his coins? God made manifest. That was his title. God made manifest. Theos Epiphanes. In fact, he's usually called Antiochus Epiphanes. Oh, yeah, there we go. I forgot I had the coin. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, which, interestingly, Epiphany, the Greek word, is actually one of the three terms that is used for the second coming of our Lord in glory. Such was the hubris of this man. And once again, he is a tool of God's judgment. Under Antiochus, uh, his armies, they capture Jerusalem, they massacre many of its citizens, and he plunders and defiles the temple of Jehovah, ending the regular worship there. And if you want to read more, you can go to the Apocrypha, to the books of Maccabees, uh, which are not inspired, canonically inspired books, and yet um, seem to give a lot of the background here for this. Um, If you ever, well, everybody's heard of Hanukkah. Uh, Hanukkah is the Jewish celebration of the the cleansing of that temple uh, from the desolation that Antiochus Epiphanes brought upon it, right? So that's that's chapter eight. Now, chapter nine then moves to the second great historical desolation of which the first will be merely a foretaste. Now, in chapter nine, there are some people that believe that chapter nine is just continuing to talk about the work of Antiochus and his um, uh, attacks on the people of God, but I think it is rather an enlargement on chapter, uh, and it's an enlargement from the vision back in chapter 7 where there was a ruler from a fourth kingdom, not the third, but a fourth kingdom who would um, also speak great blasphemies against God and uh, be a uh, thorn in the side of God's people. All right, you still with me? Everybody get lost? <clears throat> okay. Um, all right, so this is chapter 9, and we are talking about this fourth uh, kingdom and this second great historical desolation. This revelation in chapter 9 comes while Daniel is praying. And there Daniel realizes that they're getting near to the end of the 70 years of captivity that were prophesied by Jeremiah. And uh, he he knows they're getting close, it's not sure when it's gonna end, so he begins to pray. Uh, the, the 70 years is, is probably a round number. It was probably actually something like 66 years or something like that in captivity. But but Daniel knows it's you know the, the time is, is near, the prophecy is 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 close, um, and, and so he begins to, to pray. And, and he confesses Israel's sin, that, that the reason they're in captivity is right. God is just, right? If you look at chapter, nine, uh, or chapter uh, yeah, 9, verse 11, he says, And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He knows that they have what do they deserve. They deserve this desolation because of their abominations, Leviticus chapter 26, remember that the failure to observe the land Sabbath every seven years, uh, Daniel is saying the the, the judgment that was promised because of that back in the law, that's coming upon us. And by the way, that's the way that the Jewish Bible ends. The Hebrew Old Testament ends this way in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse twenty. God took into exile, I think we have it on the screen, God took into exile those who had escaped by the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept the Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. That's the way the Hebrew Bible ends. Okay? In fact, well, I'm going to lose all track of time. Um, So in the midst of this prayer, Daniel is praying. The angel Gabriel appears to him. And here's the prophecy now, beginning in verse 24. This is the one everybody knows. The famous 70 weeks. This great and mysterious vision or prophecy. The Lord, or the, the angel says to him, 70 weeks or literally seventy sevens, And remember the, the references to the land Sabbath every seven years. Seventy sevens are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression and to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy verse 25 know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one a prince there shall be seven weeks there then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat but in a troubled time and after 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. There's our word again. Verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for a week and for half a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, we try to just deal with that in the last little bit of time we have. You still there? Okay, can you wiggle around a second? All right, breathe a little bit. Okay. This is not hard necessarily. It's just lots and lots of details, right? But I hope that you'll walk out with uh, at least the big picture of where this passage is going and how our Lord is using it. And I think we should all be agreed, however, our Lord uses Scripture is the way that what? That we ought to use it, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, so verse 20, uh, verse 24. So 70 weeks are determined, uh Decreed for the people and the holy city. 77, 490 years, decreed time frame for the Jewish nation and the city of Jerusalem. And that time, the vision says, begins with the decree to go back and restore Jerusalem. Now, there are several decrees. Uh, while the people of Israel are in Babylon, there are several decrees as far as going back into the land and rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city. Um, But one of the most explicit with regarding to rebuilding the city is probably the decree from Artaxerxes in 547 B.C. 69 sevens, that is 483 years from that date, brings you right into the time of our Lord, A.D. 26 to be exact, which is likely the first year of Jesus' public ministry. That is, that time when Jesus was baptized, when he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, right? Now, that fits in with one of the purposes for this time frame. Notice verse 24. Verse 24. Everybody see it? The purposes for this time are to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. These are the negative things that our Lord does away with in his suffering for sin, I believe. He finishes transgression, puts an end to sin, and atones for iniquity. What else could it be that atones for iniquity but the shed blood of Jesus Christ? And positively, this vision asserts that Christ would, quote, bring in everlasting righteousness... That is, to all who would believe. Secondly, to seal or to confirm or to fulfill the visions and the prophecies of the Old Testament, which our Lord did in full. And thirdly, to anoint the most holy place. Or if you have an ESV, drop down the little footnote. It says it can be read, it's to anoint the most holy one. So to anoint the holy of holies, the most holy place, the temple Or to anoint the most holy one. Which is it? does it matter. Because for us, the anointed one is the anointed place. It is the anointed son of God who is the temple of his people. Now, verse 25, he says, Know and understand that from the going out of the word to rebuild Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, which if you transliterate it is just the word what? It's the word Messiah. Okay. Some versions have that. Messiah. Till the coming of the Messiah, the prince, there shall be. He's already said it's going to be 70 weeks. Now he sells you kind of a little breakdown, okay? From from the from the end of the the uh, Captivity until the coming of the Messiah is going to be 70 weeks, and he splits it up this way, seven weeks, which is probably the the time that it took to rebuild the city after the Babylonian captivity, and then 62 weeks during which that rebuilt city would, would stand in a troubled time. Uh, that, so seven weeks of years or 49 years and then 62 weeks of years totaling 69 weeks so far and then one final week at the very end. And That brings us then to verses 26 and 27 which have our key phrase abomination of desolation and this is where we're driving to. Verses 26 and 27, I'm going to put up them on the screen because these two verses tell us What comes after the 69th week, right? What comes after it? And those 62 weeks, he says this is what comes after the 62 weeks, which of course are preceded by the seven weeks, makes 69 total. Um, And these two verses form a kind of Hebrew parallelism. We're all familiar with Hebrew parallelism. If you read the Psalms or the Proverbs, right, he'll say one thing, and then another, and then he'll re-say the first thing, and he'll re-say the second thing. Um, Sometimes he'll do it sort of backwards, A-B-B-A, or sometimes he'll do A-B-A-B, which is the case with this prophecy here, I believe. So here's what happens. Verse 26a goes with verse 27a. Verse 26a says, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, that is the Messiah, shall be cut off and have nothing. There is... After those 69 weeks total, in that last week, presumably, the Messiah is cut off. That is, he is crucified. And then the beginning of verse 27, which goes with it, it says, And he, that is the Messiah, shall make a strong covenant. And the word strong is actually not an adjective. It's part of the verb. He will make strong a covenant. Now, some people think, some interpreters think, that the he in verse 27 is actually not the Christ. But in fact, as far as you can get from the Christ, that he is the Antichrist or that uh, prince that will destroy Jerusalem in verse 26. But in fact, the prince in verse 27, I know this is getting a little technical, but some of you actually care. Um, The prince in verse 26 is actually not really a main subject. He's like the object of the preposition. It's, it's the people of the prince. And it's the people who are in the focus. Uh, of the prince is, is just you know reminding us who these people are. And uh, so, so that's plural. And the subject in verse 27 is singular. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. That is, I think, our final week of those 70 weeks. There it is. He will make a covenant in that very end. The covenant will be established at the end of this period of time. Messiah will come. The covenant will be established. And then it says, and for half a week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Because in that last week, the Messiah is cut off. He is cut off by those... To whom he came. After it's as if he's cut off midweek, so to speak. Three and a half years of public ministry, rejected and rejected and rejected by those he came to, but yet his sacrifice will be the final sacrifice that all other ones pointed to. So there is no need to continue those animal sacrifices anymore. The need for those will be done away with because he is establishing a new covenant. He is making strong a new covenant, a new covenant by which Christ Jesus, listen, kept all of the covenant stipulations and demands that all of his people failed to keep for all those years. They committed an abomination after abomination. He perfectly obeyed every stipulation of the covenant. And not only that, but then he also bore the curse for covenant unfaithfulness. He bore the curse for his people. He obeys on their behalf and he suffers on their behalf, in the establishing of a new covenant, a new way of being related to God, not in terms of your own personal merit, but rather in terms of the merit of someone else, the merit of Jesus Christ himself. This, I think, is where this passage is driving all of these passages. In fact, the whole of the Bible is ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ as the blazing heart and center Now, there is one other event the angel prophesies that will also take place after those weeks. And he doesn't say with this one how long after those 69 weeks this will take place. The first one he does, he identifies it within that last week. But the second, he does not. And this is that B part, right? And what's happening here? Now, this is where we're going with Matthew The angel says, verse 26b, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city, that is the city of Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, that is the temple, but its end shall come with a flood, and to that end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. That's the word Jesus uses in Matthew 24. And then in the end of verse 27, he comes back to this, He says, and on the wing of abominations, that is the sins of Israel have brought this upon them, on the wing of abominations shall come the one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on that desolator. Once again, the same pattern of all the scriptures, God will judge his people with a foreign power and then he will judge that foreign power for its own pride and sinfulness. And Jesus citing this passage, looks at those people in front of him and he says, all these things will come to pass on this generation. And when you see the abomination of desolations run for the hills because God's judgment is about to fall. And Luke, I think, makes it explicit when in Luke chapter 21, verse 20 Instead of Jesus saying, when you see the abomination of desolations, Jesus says this, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. Daniel's prophecy, in other words, Daniel's prophecy is a prophecy of the judgment of God, but it's also... At the same time, a prophecy of blessing. Because what is the crucifixion of Christ, but the greatest demonstration of both God's judgment and also the blessing of God? What is the coming of Christ and and the response to him, but, but the greatest blessing that the world has ever known? And yet, what is it to those people who were eyewitnesses to the Savior, but the greatest condemnation that would ever come on their head for their rejection of him. Those 77s, and we're just about done, those 77s were Jeremiah's 70-year judgment made sevenfold. This was ultimate judgment that was about to fall. Not just 70 years like the, Babylonian judgment, but 77-fold judgment. This is the great judgment. Remember Leviticus chapter 26, God will bring your judgment sevenfold upon your head, and it would end in desolation and again in destruction and the end of the temple and the sacrifices and the offerings. But at the same time, it would be, according to Daniel's prophecy, a an atonement for iniquity and everlasting righteousness, and it would bring in a better temple and a better sacrifice and better offerings. It would be the year of jubilee. Remember how that came about every, after every 49 years? Then you had the year of jubilee. This is the ultimate jubilee not after 49 years, but after 490 years. This is the greatest, jubilee, the greatest judgment of all time upon the people of Israel and the greatest blessing of all time upon those who would put their faith in Christ. This is a great and beautiful prediction and fearful prediction of the coming, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the covenant curses, are here as well as the covenant blessing for those who are united to the one who bore that curse for us. I'll finish with this last passage, Isaiah chapter 61. This really summarizes it well. And this, in fact, was quoted by our Lord himself. And he said it has reference to me. Take a look in closing. The spirit of the Lord is upon me Because the Lord has anointed me. Remember, one of the things in that vision is to anoint the most holy one. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison for those who are bound. When does all that happen? It happens in the year of our Lord's favor that great jubilee year when the prison doors are set open and the prisoners go free. Those who are enslaved are set free. All debts are erased. Everything goes back to a restorative relationship. And that's the way it will be when our Lord Jesus comes, this prophet says. It will be the day of, or the year of the Lord's favor. But notice not only will it be the great jubilee but it will also be the great desolation. It will, And he says, the day of vengeance of our God. This will be a day to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified and for those who are in the heavenly Zion, he says, verse four, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. I, I think what this passage is doing is that it is setting before us a blessing and a curse. And that really is what I'm doing for you today. I set before you in this Passage in these passages, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. A curse upon all of those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, an eternal judgment for your sins. The judgment upon unbelieving Israel was an example of God's judgment upon all unbelief, and the vengeance of God. This passage says, The right the righteous. Revenge of God will fall on those who reject him. But notice this, for all who believe, Christ became a curse for them and they enter the eternal year of Jubilee where there is liberty for those who were slaves to sin, slaves to death, slaves to the enemy, the year of the favor of God upon you for all eternity. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be. That you put your faith and trust in him. Heavenly Father thank you. For this word. And Lord I pray. That the message of this word. That you would cause it right now. To come home to us all that we would not be caught up and lost in all of the details. But Father, let us see the weightiness of dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that every one of us would respond to him with faith. We ask you for it. We wait upon you now that you would grant faith in the hearing of your word through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray it in Christ Jesus' name, amen.